This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 9 The Error of Impartiality The refusal of the jurors in the Thaw trial to come to an agreement is certainly a somewhat amusing sequel to the frenzied and even fantastic caution with which they were selected. Jurymen were set aside for reasons which seem to have only the very wildest relation to the case, reasons which we cannot conceive as giving any human being a real bias. It may be questioned whether the exaggerated theory of impartiality in an arbiter or a juryman may not be carried so far as to be more unjust than partiality itself. What people call impartiality may simply mean indifference, and what people call partiality may simply mean mental activity. It is sometimes made an objection, for instance, to a juror that he has formed some prima facie opinion upon a case, if he can be forced under sharp questioning to admit that he has formed such an opinion, he is regarded as manifestly unfit to conduct the inquiry. Surely this is unsound. If his bias is one of interest, of class or creed, or notorious propaganda, then that fact certainly proves that he is not an impartial arbiter. But the mere fact that he did form some temporary impression from the first facts, as far as he knew them, this does not prove that he is not an impartial arbiter. It only proves that he is not a cold-blooded fool. If we walk down the street, taking all the jurymen who have not formed opinions, and leaving all the jurymen who have formed opinions, it seems highly probable that we shall only succeed in taking all the stupid jurymen, and leaving all the thoughtful ones. Provided that the opinion formed is really of this airy and abstract kind, provided that it has no suggestion of settled motive or prejudice, we might well regard it not merely as a promise of capacity, but literally as a promise of justice. The man who took the trouble to deduce from the police reports would probably be the man who would take the trouble to deduce further and different things from the evidence. The man who had the sense to form an opinion would be the man who would have the sense to alter it. It is worth while to dwell for a moment on this minor aspect of the matter, because the error about impartiality and justice is by no means confined to a criminal question. In much more serious matters it is assumed that the agnostic is impartial, whereas the agnostic is merely ignorant. The logical outcome of the fastidiousness about the thaw jurors would be that the case ought to be tried by Eskimo, or Hottentots, or savages from the cannibal islands, by some class of people who could have no conceivable interest in the parties, and moreover, no conceivable interest in the case. The pure and starry perfection of impartiality would be reached by people who not only had no opinion before they had heard the case, but also who had no opinion after they had heard it. In the same way, there is in modern discussions of religion and philosophy an absurd assumption that a man is in some way just and well poised because he has come to no conclusion, and that a man is in some way knocked off the list of fair judges because he has come to a conclusion. 
it is assumed that the sceptic has no bias, whereas he has a very obvious bias in favor of scepticism. I remember once arguing with an honest young atheist who was very much shocked at my disputing some of the assumptions which were absolute sanctities to him, such as the quite unproved proposition of the independence of matter and the quite improbable proposition of its power to originate mind, and he at length fell back upon this question, which he delivered with an honorable heat of defiance and indignation. Well, can you tell me any man of intellect, great in sciences or philosophy, who accepted the miraculous? I said with pleasure, Descartes, Dr. Johnson, Newton, Faraday, Newman, Gladstone, Pasteur, Browning, Bruntier, as many more as you please, to which that quite admirable and idealistic young man made this astonishing reply. Oh, but of course they had to say that they were Christians. First he challenged me to find a black swan, and then he ruled out all my swans, because they were black. The fact that all these great intellects had come to the Christian view was somehow or other a proof, either that they were not great intellects, or that they had not really come to that view. The argument thus stood in a charmingly convenient form. All men that count have come to my conclusion, for if they come to your conclusion, they do not count. It did not seem to occur to such controversialists that if Cardinal Newman was really a man of intellect, the fact that he adhered to a dogmatic religion proved exactly as much as the fact that Professor Huxley, another man of intellect, found that he could not adhere to dogmatic religion. That is to say, as I cheerfully admit, it proved precious little either way. If there is one class of men whom history has proved especially and supremely capable of going quite wrong in all directions, it is the class of highly intellectual men. I would always prefer to go by the bulk of humanity. That is why I am a Democrat. But whatever be the truth about exceptional intelligence and the masses, it is manifestly most unreasonable that intelligent men should be divided upon the absurd modern principle of regarding every clever man who cannot make up his mind as an impartial judge, and regarding every clever man who can make up his mind as a servile fanatic. As it is, we seem to regard it as a positive objection to a reasoner that he has taken one side or the other. We regard it, in other words, as a positive objection to a reasoner that he has contrived to reach the object of his reasoning. We call a man a bigot or a slave of dogma because he is a thinker who has thought through and to a definite end. We say that the juryman is not a juryman because he has brought in a verdict. We say that the judge is not a judge because he gives judgment. We say that the sincere believer has no right to vote simply because he has voted. Phonetic Spelling A correspondent asks me to make more lucid my remarks about phonetic spelling. I have no detailed objection to items of spelling reform. My objection is to a general principle, and it is this. It seems to me that what is really wrong with all the modern and highly civilized language is that it does so largely consist of dead words. 
Half our speech consists of similes that remind us of no similarity, of pictorial phrases that call up no picture, of historical allusions the origin of which we have forgotten. Take any instance on which the eye happens to alight. I saw in the paper some days ago that well-known leader of a certain religious party wrote to supporter of his following curious words. I have not forgotten the talented way in which you held up the banner at Birkenhead. Taking the ordinary, vague meaning of the word talented, there is no coherency in the picture. The trumpets blow, the spears shake and glitter, and in the thick of the purple battle there stands a gentleman holding up a banner in a talented way. And when we come to the original force of the word talent, the matter is worse. A talent is a Greek coin used in the New Testament as a symbol of the mental capital committed to an individual at birth. If the religious leader in question had really meant anything by his phrases, he would have been puzzled to know how a man could use a Greek coin to hold up a banner. But really he meant nothing by his phrases. Holding up the banner was to him a colorless term for doing the proper thing, and talented was a colorless term for doing it successfully. Now my own fear, touching anything in the way of phonetic spelling, is that it would simply increase this tendency to use words as counters and not as coins. The original life in a word, as in the word talent, burns low as it is. Sensible spelling might extinguish it altogether. Suppose any sentence you like. Suppose a man says, Republics generally encourage holidays. It looks like the top line of a copybook. Now, it is perfectly true that if you wrote that sentence exactly as it is pronounced, even by highly educated people, the sentence would run, Republics generally incur holidays, spelled R-I-P-U-B-L-I-K-S, J-E-N-R-A-L-L-Y, I-N-K-U-R-R-I-J, H-O-L-L-I-D-I-E-S. It looks ugly, but I have not the smallest objection to ugliness. My objection is that these four words each have a history and hidden treasures in them, that this history and hidden treasures, which we tend to forget too much as it is, phonetic spelling tends to make us forget altogether. Republic does not mean merely a mode of political choice. Republic, as we see when we look at the structure of the word, means the public thing the abstraction which is us all. A Republican is not a man who wants a constitution with a president. A Republican is a man who prefers to think of government as impersonal. He is opposed to the Royalist who prefers to think of government as personal. Take the second word, generally. This is always used as meaning in the majority of cases, but again, if we look at the shape and spelling of the words, we shall see that generally means something more like generically, and is akin to such words as generation or regenerate. Pigs are generally dirty does not mean that pigs are in the majority of cases dirty, but that pigs as a race or genus are dirty, that pigs as pigs are dirty, an important philosophical distinction. Take the third word, encourage. The word encourage is used in such modern sentences in merely automatic sense of promote. To encourage poetry means merely to advance or assist poetry. But to encourage poetry means properly to put courage into poetry, a fine idea. Take the fourth word, holidays. 
as long as that word remains it will always answer the ignorant slander which asserts that religion was opposed to human cheerfulness that word will always assert that when a day is holy it should also be happy properly spelt these words all tell a sublime story like westminster abbey phonetically spelt they might lose the last traces of any such story generally is an exalted metaphysical term j-e-n-r-a-l-l-y is not if you encourage a man you pour into him the chivalry of a hundred princes this does not happen if you merely i-n-k-u-r-r-i-j him republic republics if spelt phonetically might actually forget to be public holidays if spelt phonetically might actually forget to be holy here is a case that has just occurred a certain magistrate told somebody whom he was examining in court that he or she should always be polite to the police i do not know whether the magistrate noticed the circumstances but the word polite and the word police have the same origin and meaning politeness means the atmosphere and ritual of the city the symbol of human civilization the policeman means the representative and guardian of the city the symbol of human civilization and it may be doubted whether the two ideas are commonly connected in the mind it is probable that we often hear of politeness without thinking of a policeman it is even possible that our eyes often alight upon a policeman without our thoughts instantly flying to the subject of politeness yet the idea of the sacred city is not only the link of them both it is the only serious justification and the only serious corrective of them both if politeness means too often a mere frippery it is because it has not enough to do with serious patriotism and public dignity if policemen are coarse or casual it is because they are not sufficiently convinced that they are the servants of the beautiful city and the agents of sweetness and light politeness is not really a frippery politeness is not really even a thing merely suave and deprecating politeness is an armed guard stern and splendid and vigilant watching over all the ways of men in other words politeness is a policeman a policeman is not merely a heavy man with a truncheon a policeman is a machine for the smoothing and sweetening of the accidents of everyday existence in other words a policeman is politeness a veiled image of politeness sometimes impenetrably veiled but my point is here that by losing the original idea of the city which is the force and youth of both the words both the things actually degenerate our politeness loses all manliness because we forget that politeness is only the greek for patriotism our policemen lose all delicacy because we forget that a policeman is only the greek for something civilized a policeman should often have the functions of a knight-errant a policeman should always have the elegance of a knight-errant but i am not sure that he would succeed any better in remembering this obligation of romantic grace if his name were spelt phonetically supposing that it could be spelt phonetically some spelling reformers i am told in the poorer parts of london do spell his name phonetically very phonetically they call him a policeman p-l-e-e-c-e-m-a-n thus the whole romance of the ancient city disappears from the word and the policeman's reverend courtesy of demeanor deserts him quite suddenly this does seem to me the case against any extreme revolution in spelling if you spell a word wrong 
you have some temptation to think it wrong. Humanitarianism and Strength Somebody writes complainingly of something I said about progress. I've forgotten what I said, but I'm quite certain that it was like a certain Mr. Douglas in a poem, which I have also forgotten, tender and true. In any case, what I say now is this. Human history is so rich and complicated that you can make out a case for any course of improvement or retrogression. I could make out that the world has been growing more democratic, for the English franchise has certainly grown more democratic. I could also make out that the world has been growing more aristocratic, for the English public schools have certainly grown more aristocratic. I could prove the decline of militarism by the decline of flogging. I could prove the increase of militarism by the increase of standing armies and conscription. But I can prove anything in this way. I can prove that the world has always been growing greener. Only lately men have invented absinthe and the Westminster Gazette. I could prove the world has grown less green. There are no more Robin Hood foresters, and fields are being covered with houses. I could show that the world was less red with khaki or more red with new penny stamps, but in all cases progress means progress only in some particular thing. Have you ever noticed that strange line of Tennyson in which he confesses half-consciously how very conventional progress is? Let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. Even in praising change he takes for a simile the most unchanging thing. He calls our modern change a groove, and it is a groove. Perhaps there never was anything so groovy. Nothing would induce me, in so idle a monologue as this, to discuss adequately a great political matter like the question of the military punishments in Egypt. But I may suggest one broad reality to be observed by both sides, and which is, generally speaking, observed by neither. Whatever else is right, it is utterly wrong to employ the argument that we Europeans must do to savages and Asiatics whatever savages and Asiatics do to us. I have seen some controversialists use the metaphor, we must fight them with their own weapons. Very well, let those controversialists take their metaphor and take it literally. Let us fight the Sudanese with their own weapons. Their own weapons are largely very clumsy knives with an occasional old-fashioned gun. Their own weapons are also torture and slavery. If we fight them with torture and slavery, we shall be fighting badly, precisely as if we fought them with clumsy knives and old guns. That is the whole strength of our Christian civilization, that it does fight with its own weapons and not with other people's. It is not true that superiority suggests a tit for tat. It is not true that if a small hooligan puts his tongue out at the Lord Chief Justice, the Lord Chief Justice immediately realizes that his only chance of maintaining his position is to put his tongue out at the little hooligan. The hooligan may or may not have any respect at all for the Lord Chief Justice. That is a matter which we may contentedly leave as a solemn psychological mystery. But if the hooligan has any respect at all for the Lord Chief Justice, that respect is certainly extended to the Lord Chief Justice, entirely because he does not put his tongue out. 
Exactly in the same way the ruder or more sluggish races regard the civilization of Christendom. If they have any respect for it, it is precisely because it does not use their own coarse and cruel expedients. According to some modern moralists, whenever Zulus cut off the heads of dead Englishmen, Englishmen must cut off the heads of dead Zulus. Whenever Arabs or Egyptians constantly use the whip to their slaves, Englishmen must constantly use the whip to their subjects. And on a similar principle, I suppose, whenever an English admiral has to fight cannibals, the English admiral ought to eat them. However unattractive a menu, consisting entirely of barbaric kings, may appear to an English gentleman, he must try to sit down to it with an appetite. He must fight the Sandwich Islanders with their own weapons, and their own weapons are knives and forks. But the truth of the matter is, of course, that to do this kind of thing is to break the whole spell of our supremacy. All the mystery of the white man, all the fearful poetry of the white man, so far as it exists in the eyes of these savages, consists in the fact that we do not do such things. The Zulus point to us and say, Observe the advent of these inexplicable demigods, these magicians who do not cut off the noses of their enemies. The Sudanese say to each other, This hardy people never flogs its servants. It is superior to the simplest and most obvious human pleasures. And the cannibals say, The austere and terrible race, the race that denies itself even boiled missionary, is upon us. Let us flee. Whether or no these details are a little conjectural, the general proposition, I suggest, is the plainest common sense. The elements that make Europe, upon the whole, the most humanitarian civilization are precisely the elements that make it, upon the whole, the strongest. For the power which makes a man able to entertain a good impulse is the same as that which enables him to make a good gun. It is imagination. It is imagination that makes a man outwit his enemy and it is imagination that makes him spare his enemy. It is precisely because this picturing of the other man's point of view is in the main a thing in which Christians and Europeans specialize, that Christians and Europeans, with all their faults, have carried to such perfection both the art and peace of war. They alone have invented machine guns, and they alone have invented ambulances. They have invented ambulances, strange as it may sound, for the same reason for which they have invented machine guns. Both involve a vivid calculation of remote events. It is precisely because the East, with all its wisdom, is cruel, that the East, with all its wisdom, is weak. And it is precisely because savages are pitiless that they are still merely savages. And if they could imagine their enemy's sufferings, they could also imagine his tactics. If Zulus did not cut off the Englishman's head, they might really borrow it. For if you do not understand a man, you cannot crush him. And if you do understand him, you very probably will not. When I was about seven years old, I used to think that the chief modern danger was a danger of over-civilization. I am inclined to think now that the chief modern danger is that of a slow return towards barbarism. Just such a return towards barbarism, as indicated in the suggestions of barbaric retaliation of which I have just spoken. 
Civilization, in the best sense, merely means the full authority of the human spirit over all externals. Barbarism means the worship of those externals in their crude and unconquered state. Barbarism means the worship of nature and in recent poetry, science, and philosophy. There has been too much of the worship of nature. Wherever men begin to talk much and with great solemnity about the forces outside man, the note of it is barbaric. When men talk much about heredity and environment, they are almost barbarians. The modern men of science are many of them almost barbarians. Mr. Blatchford is in great danger of becoming a barbarian. For barbarians, especially the truly squalid and unhappy barbarians, are always talking about these scientific subjects from morning till night. That is why they remain squalid and unhappy. That is why they remain barbarians. Hottentots are always talking about heredity, like Mr. Blatchford. Sandwich Islanders are always talking about environment, like Mr. Southers, savages, those that are truly stunted or depraved, dedicate nearly all their tales and sayings to the subject of physical kinship, of a curse on this or that tribe, of a taint in this or that family, of the invincible law of blood, of the unavoidable evil of places. The true savage is a slave, and is always talking about what he must do. The true civilized man is a free man and always talking about what he may do. Hence all the Zola heredity and Ibsen heredity that has been written in our time affects me as not merely evil, but as essentially ignorant and retrogressive. This sort of science is almost the only thing that can, with strict propriety, be called reactionary. Scientific determinism is simply the primal twilight of all mankind, and some men seem to be returning to it. Another savage trait of our time is the disposition to talk about material substances instead of about ideas. The old civilization talked about the sin of gluttony or excess. We talk about the problem of drink, as if drink could be a problem. When people have come to call the problem of human intemperance the problem of drink, and to talk about curing it by attacking the drink traffic, they have reached quite a dim stage of barbarism. The thing is an inverted form of fetish worship. It is no sillier to say that a bottle is a god than to say that a bottle is a devil. The people who talk about the curse of drink will probably progress down that dark hill. In a little while we shall have them calling the practice of wife-beating the problem of pokers. The habit of housebreaking will be called the problem of skeleton-key trade. And for all I know, they may try to prevent forgery by shutting up all the stationer's shops by an act of Parliament. I cannot help thinking that there is some shadow of this uncivilized materialism lying at present upon a much more dignified and valuable cause. Everyone is talking just now about the desirability of ingeminating peace and averting war. But even war and peace are physical states, rather than moral states, and in talking about them only we have by no means got to the bottom of the matter. For instance, do we, as a matter of fact, create peace in one single community, 
we do not do it by vaguely telling everyone to avoid fighting and to submit to anything that is done to him we do it by definitely defining his rights and then undertaking to avenge his wrongs we shall never have a common peace in europe till we have a common principle in europe people talk of the united states of europe but they forget that it needed the very doctrinal declaration of independence to make the united states of america you cannot agree about nothing any more than you can quarrel about nothing end of section nine